welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Thanks, Josh, for reading that. Um, If you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. In the month of December, we have taken a short break from our series in James and Ephesians to remember and celebrate the coming of the promised one, the Christ. It has been a joy for me to hear from several different teachers. Tony began in Luke chapter 1, giving us the necessary background information for this gospel and emphasizing the foretelling of the birth of Jesus and Mary's remarkable response. Last week, Alex Tandon joined us and walked with us further through this chapter, emphasizing Mary's song of praise to the Lord because of his eternal faithfulness and mercy. To give you just a bit of a sneak peek, Lord willing, we will hear next from Josh about the heavenly host announcing to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Then closing out this series, Um, Carl will tell us of Simeon's prophetic words over the Christ child, the revelation of God to the whole world. But today, my task is to proclaim the glory of God through the prophetic words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. We just heard the reading of Luke 1, 5 through 25, where Zechariah is is confronted in in the temple by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel announces the miraculous birth of John, to which Zechariah responds with doubt asking for a sign. As a rebuke to Zechariah, Gabriel gives him the sign of dumbness, the inability to speak, until Gabriel's words were fulfilled. Zechariah then went home, and his wife conceived. In Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66, the story picks back up roughly nine months later. So we'll begin reading there in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This narrative sets the stage for the prophetic words of God spoken through the mouth of Zechariah. God has taken a doubting man, one who has given up hope, and over the period of nine months, given him a glimpse of the unfolding salvation of the Lord. There is nothing quite like tasting and seeing the salvation of the Lord. You do not come away from that encounter unchanged. When the Spirit of God impresses on your heart the reality of the creator of the universe, stooping low to snatch you from the flames of destruction, you are changed. Whether it's his hand snatching you from the flames of hell or his protective arm between you and self-destruction, or maybe he has even saved you from physical enemies. Experiencing the salvation of the Lord draws our hearts towards worship, the lifting up of our God above every other love. With that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer 
asking him to impress on our hearts anew the reality that he has provided salvation for his people. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us without testimony of your active care and mercy. Thank you for sending the Son. We are so undeserving. Would you remind us of that today? Would you impress on our hearts the awesome nature and extent of your salvation? Would you take this broken vessel and lift high the name of Jesus this morning? All to the glory of the Father. Your will be done. Amen. I have entitled this sermon, God Has Visited and Redeemed His People. And in verses 68 through 79, we will explore two powerful images presented by the Holy Spirit that will demonstrate this truth. First, we will explore a horn of salvation. And second, a new day dawning. As we begin, keep this context in mind. Zechariah has not spoken a word in nine months. To much delight, his son is indeed born, just as Gabriel foretold. And when pestered by his friends as to what his, to name his son, Zechariah writes down on a tablet, his name is John. Those words reveal Zechariah's changed heart. It's as if he is saying the words of God are true. I was wrong. And my son's name has been John since before he was conceived. With this act of faith, Zechariah's mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit prophesying these words. We'll begin in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to, his fa- to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sin. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah's prophecy begins with, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. By blessing the Lord, Zechariah is praising God, calling on him to be lifted up, elevated, honored. He is bowing the knee in worship. To bless the Lord is not simply to worship him with your mouth or words, but instead is to proclaim his worthiness with your whole being. David says in Psalm 103 verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. These are no mere religious words. Zechariah's entire uh, being is publicly proclaiming the infinite beauty and worth of God for all to hear. Why? Because he has tasted and seen the salvation. He says that God has visited and redeemed his people. This idea of God visiting his people is often found in the Old Testament and carries with it the idea of God bending down to hear and see the condition of his people. This emphasizes the truth that Yahweh is not a God God that is far off, removed, 
or unaware of the suffering and difficulties of his people. The most memorable of the Old Testament uses of this idea is found in Exodus 3. The people of Israel are in bondage to Egypt, and God is commissioning Moses to be his emissary. God says to Moses in verse 7 of chapter 3, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry, masters. I know their sufferings. Not only has the Lord visited his people, Zechariah also prophesies that God has redeemed his people. This word redeemed means to save something at cost or to purchase something back that was lost. This idea is again pictured for us in Exodus 3. In the very next verse, God says, I have come down to deliver my people out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This deliverance from Egypt is pointed to no less than 80 times in the Old Testament as the reason why the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is worthy of all glory, worship, and praise. Before delivering the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, even God spoke these words as a reminder to them of who he is and why they are to fear and obey him. Genesis 20 verses 2 through 3 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods. Steeped in this terminology, in this narrative of a God who saves his people, Zechariah prophesies another salvation for the people of God. And as we will see, an even greater salvation. How will God accomplish this? We are given two glimpses of this salvation of the Lord in the next few verses. Going back to the text, it says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. What does Zechariah mean when he speaks of a horn of salvation? This is not a phrase that readily translates into our culture. But as you look into the language of the Old Testament, you begin to see that this is not depicting a musical instrument, but instead is the dangerous horns of a wild ox. We see this imagery in passages like Psalm 92. You've exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. Micah 4, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze. Psalm 132, in Zion I will make a horn to sprout for David. And 2 Samuel 22, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. This horn represents the powerful and deadly instrument by which God will save his people. From their enemy. Next, Zechariah confirms the identity of this horn of salvation. He is of the house of David, just as God foretold through his holy prophets of old. This horn of salvation is none other than the Messiah that Israel was looking for. It was their hope that this Messiah or anointed one would fulfill the prophecies about Israel being freed from their oppressors, that he would take up the sovereign rule the kingdom of David, his ancestor. And the Holy Spirit through Zechariah is confirming that this horn of salvation truly is the one that the, that the prophets spoke about. In verse 72, we see why God would do all this. Why does he go to such great lengths to provide this salvation? 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The reason God stoops low to provide salvation for his people is because of his mercy. And in his sovereign purpose, he chose to primarily point, pour out his mercy through the descendants of Abraham. God's method for declaring his mercy was often through covenants and promises. This is what Zechariah is referring to, is referencing the covenants and oaths given by God to the patriarchs and specifically his covenant with Abraham. Verses 74 and 75 are not an exact quote of any one covenant, but instead is a summation of the mercy that God had promised to his people based on his covenant with Abraham. This is what the horn of salvation will bring to pass. Verse 74, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. These two verses in many ways summarize the heart desire of every genuine child of that in the end we would have peace and rest, that we be holy or set apart unto God and that we would live as the people of God ought. This is a good and right desire. After all, it is God's ultimate plan and purpose for his people. But there's a problem. As you read the Old Testament, it didn't matter how many human rescuers, judges, prophets, priests, and kings were sent. The people simply could not live like lives. Even when they were delivered from their enemies and they had no fear, they still did not serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness. Times of peace were always followed by falling away from their God. I'm sure there were many Jews that thought, this time we'll get it right. We've added some more rules to God's law to fill in the gaps and created extra religious positions to help police the masses. This time, we will not fall away. But the ingenuity, effort, righteousness, and goodness of man cannot pacify the holiness and justice of God. And it cannot change the heart of man. It couldn't do it back then, and it will not today. How would the, the Messiah, the horn of salvation, be able to bring about this lasting change of people of God? What would make this Savior different from every other one that had gone before? The second glimpse of how God will save his people is found in verses 76 through 79. Salvation will come as a new day dawning. This section begins with a clarifying statement about John. It's as if during Zechariah's prophecy, he walks over and picks up his son, now looking at him in his face, saying these words, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. These two verses distinguish John as someone different from the horn of salvation. John is not the Messiah, but instead he will be the prophet of the Most High. We tend to gloss over these words as we read through the scriptures, but they are significant because there had not been a prophet sent by God for centuries. The birth and message of God's prophet signaled the coming dawn, like in the early hours of the morning when you wake up to see the sunrise. You can't see the sun yet, 
There are no golden beams of light streaking over the hills, but the pitch black darkness of night is already losing its grip on the landscape. The early morning dim heralds the coming, the dawn. And John was that. Verse 76, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. John would herald to the people, wake up, shake off your, off your stupor of sleep. Get ready for the coming of the Lord. Remove every obstacle from his path. Be ready for he is coming. Prepare your hearts for the king. Every part of this message of the coming Messiah would have been joyous news to the nation of Israel. Even the notion of the coming of the horn of salvation would have filled everyone with images of a grand and mighty deliverance from their pagan oppressors. But the final portion of verse 77 would have left many scratching their heads. It says to give knowledge of salvation to his people and their forgiveness of their sins. What? Salvation brought about through forgiveness of my sins? That's not what I was expecting. That's not really even what I want. I need salvation from my persecutors. Remove this trial from my life, and then I'll be able to serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness. The list doesn't stop there. If only I had better parents, or a better education, or better opportunities for work, or lived in a different country, then I would have joy and peace in my God. The Jewish people as a nation did not want a savior for their souls. After all, they were pretty good people, sons of Abraham, followers of the law. No, they wanted a savior that would advance their lifestyle, one who would bring them health, wealth, and happiness. But before we cast judgment on the Jews, what about us? Do you believe you are a pretty good person who just needs salvation from your life circumstances that keep holding you back? Do you cry out to Jesus for deliverance from your boss, poverty, illness, or social injustice? But have never in repentance and faith cast yourself upon the mercy of God because of the total depravity of your own soul? What do you believe is your greatest need? The Lord God the the Almighty sent his prophet John to declare the knowledge of what your true need is and what my true need is. Salvation through the forgiveness of our sins. Why would the creator of the universe bend so low to care about you and me? Verse 78 says, because of the tender mercy of our God. It's the same reason given in verse 72. It's the mercy of God. God in his sovereign purpose has poured out mercy in abundance through the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of our sins. Who will provide the forgiveness of sins? Well, it's not you or me. The word of God is very clear that no one is righteous in God's sight. Romans 3 verses 10 through 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. We will never save ourselves through our own good deeds. Who else might provide this forgiveness of sins? The prophet John? No. John was just the messenger, proclaiming the one who would follow, who was greater than John. Verses 78 through 79 tell us of the salvation that was promised and that had arrived. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah prophesies in the Holy Spirit, 
that through the mercy of God, our salvation will come from the heavens as a new sun rising like the dawning of a new day. This new day dawning will be different. Its light will pierce even to the deepest pit and through the thickest forest. Not even the shadow of death, the depiction of the deepest darkness expressible, will blind the eyes of the one over whom this dawn rises. The light from this sun will not only give sight to the spiritually blind and oppressed, it will also shine light upon their path, that they might also walk, moving forward in newness of life, following the way of peace. Jesus would later say during his ministry here on earth, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8. And in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy is the one who visited and redeemed his people. He is the horn of salvation, the mighty and powerful deliverer promised to the patriarchs. He is the one John proclaimed, the one who would bring salvation through the forgiveness of sins, the light that shines through the darkness, a new day. How did Jesus accomplish this? By what means did he bring this all to pass? The word of God describes all humanity as slaves to the God of this world, the devil. And in Hebrews 2 verses 14 through 15, it says that Christ took on a human nature, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The birth of Jesus is depicted as an invasion of this world by the mighty Savior and rightful King. With the fatal blow to the devil and all he represents coming through the sacrificial death and resurrection of the Messiah, the devil, the accuser of our souls, was defeated because his grip on us was based on our sin guilt before God. But now through the faith, through faith in Jesus' mighty salvation, our sins can be eternally forgiven. John Piper illustrated Zechariah's prophecy in a way that is difficult for me to improve upon. So I will read you his words. I quote, Satan may be a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but none of those who take refuge in Christ, the horn of our salvation, can he destroy. If I were an artist, I would paint for my house a special Christmas painting this year and hang it on the wall near the manger scene. It would be one of those big oil canvases. The scene would be of a distant hill at dawn. The sun is about to rise behind the hill and the rays shoot up and out of the picture. And all alone, silhouetted on the hill in the center of the picture, very dark, is a magnificent wild ox standing with his back seven feet tall and the crown of his head nine feet tall. On both sides of his head, there is a horn curving out and up six feet long and 12 inches thick at the base. He stands there, sovereign and serene, facing the southern sky with his massive neck slightly cocked and impaled at the end of his right horn hangs, a huge dead lion. Praise God, for he has visited and redeemed his people.
Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for not leaving us to our own destruction. Thank you for delivering us from slavery to the devil and from the bondage of our own sin. We are so undeserving of the sacrifice of the Son. Because of that, we praise you all the more. He who has been forgiven much loves me. We praise you for you have visited and redeemed your people.